The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Father, we have received a uh, rather lengthy and rather personal email here from a viewer that I would like to go through here. Um, obviously, I'll admit some of the details here for the sake of confidentiality. But uh, if I could just read through some of this, the viewer asks, How does someone who has never learned to swim keep from drowning in life's ocean? If someone has spent two to three years of their childhood and adolescence becoming a complete servant of sin, how do they break away from it? How do you become detached from the world while still living in it? What if a person had committed sins of impurity, and though they'd repented of it, they are still so sorely tempted that they fall often? Impurity weaves its evil strands into your mind, heart, and body until glancing at another person becomes a place of temptation. Your own body becomes a place of temptation. Even in meditating on the sufferings of Jesus Christ, evil thoughts push themselves into your mind. How do you overcome this? Everything is a temptation and you've no way to get out of it. Where do you find refuge if your mind is so corrupted that even Christ brings evil thoughts to it? <clears throat> well, even the thought of Christ, because Christ doesn't bring evil thoughts to our minds, of course, but I understand what uh, your questioner means by that, I believe. Um, well, that's, that's a very good question. It, it actually is a good question that affects virtually everybody. Everyone here is trying to be faithful to our Lord, uh, live in the state of grace, die in the state of grace. Um, so uh, I, I would say that what this questioner is asking is the perennial question that uh, uh, that we're all facing, frankly. And uh, of course, traditionally we know that there are three sources of three great sources of temptation: the world, the flesh, and the devil. And she's asking about living in the world without being corrupted by it, overcoming the temptation that it provides. But uh, inevitably, of course, when she's asking about the challenges that the world presents to virtue, she necessarily uh, includes the flesh because the flesh has the weaknesses for the world to prey on, P-R-E-Y. And um, then also there's the influence of the devil. And, and these three converge and uh, they kind of conspire together to bring down the soul, and finally bring down the soul to hell. Um, she mentioned, or he mentions, whoever, that mentioned specifically uh, matters of impurity, okay? And um, as though one can even in the pre-teen years get into, uh, into these sins of impurity. And it's the world we, we have, I, I won't say it's the world in which we live, it's the world which they've made. They've, they've fabricated a world in which even the young children are presented with such uh, flagrant impurity and immodesty that the children develop a kind of morbid curiosity. I'm talking about children five, six, seven years old. 
develop a kind of morbid curiosity about about matters of impurity. And they're confronted with these things uh, in virtually every form of entertainment. Uh, and the, the billboards down the highway and uh, conversations they hear uh, <clears throat> among adults and so on and so forth, I mean, it's, it's just everywhere. See, this is the devil's ploy. Uh, Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not omniscient. Satan cannot be everywhere. He cannot know everything. He's not omnipotent. He can't do everything. But they say that he is the ape of God, which means that he <clears throat> tries to imitate God. Okay, um, <clears throat> And one way that he tries to imitate God's omnipresence is by corrupting everything we see. But the corruption is actually in our minds. What Satan wants to do, though, is make everything... Uh, represent in our minds something vile, something vicious, something impure, something corrupt. So that no matter where we look in the world, <clears throat> uh, everything is suggestive of uh, evil. Okay, Everything becomes a temptation for sin. That's what Satan wants. <clears throat> so he tries to uh, flood the world with uh, emblems of himself, uh, so that it seems that no matter where we turn, there he is, you know, somehow staring back at us. He wants everything around us to be associated in our minds with something indecent. That's where we get the word suggestive. He wants everything around us to suggest something impure. But of course, these things around us are innocent in themselves. Uh, it's just that the connection has been made in our mind, tying them together with something impure. So when we see these things, we're supposed to, uh, almost as a reflex, immediately uh, register something impure comes into our, uh, our uh, imagination. <clears throat> and a person who has lived a life encouraging that, making those connections in his or her imagination, so that virtually everything, I mean, even prayer, even our Lord, right? Um, is immediately bound up with some impure idea. People like that find even praying a source of temptation because they find that all of the impure associations are going on in their imagination. And someone who's really trying to save the soul, and someone who's trying to uh, be faithful to our Lord, finds themselves being bombarded. It feels like they're being bombarded from without, but actually the, these associations are all been made within their, their own imagination. How do they purify them? Well, uh, they have to, um, first of all, pray. Uh, pray and pray and pray. Our Lord says it over and again. Pray uh, always, right? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be asked. Shall be opened unto you. All of those three, asking, seeking, knocking. We have to do all of these things. What are we asking for? We're, we are demanding purity of heart. Purity of heart is a good virtue, purity in the soul. Our Lord says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who are pure of heart, for they shall see God, which is the aspiration for all who want to save their souls. And so um, we have to pray, especially those whose imaginations have already been, uh, as it were, malformed um, by indulging in these impure thoughts, uh, perhaps long before they realize the morality of them. But now the damage is done, you know. Um, they have a bad habit of mind, 
and uh, bad habits can only be overcome by dint of difficult effort over a long period of time by the, by the help of grace. So they really have to pray insistently uh, for the grace of purity of heart and not stop. Uh, Christ makes it very clear. I mean, we have to be very demanding. In this case, we do have to take heaven by storm, you know. Uh, the violent possess the kingdom of heaven. What does our Lord mean by that? It means the ones who are willing to do violence themselves. And doesn't mean physically. It means that they are willing to mortify themselves, their, their desires, um, their passions, their imagination. Uh, all that I could really, uh, in this program, uh, in a few minutes, recommend to this dear soul, who's now trying to fight the good fight, is uh, go, to, go to confession regularly, but I would say because of the danger of becoming scrupulous, probably no more than once a week. Um, or whenever you are absolutely certain that you have fallen into mortal sin. Certain, I say, not possible. If you're going to confession and confessing what you might have done here, you might have done this, you might have done that, you thought this, you might have given full consent, you might not have, then you should tell the priest that I'm scrupulous. I think I'm scrupulous, and I'm not sure, you know, I'm just not sure, but I'm confessing all of these as God sees them, because I don't know to what extent I consented. I don't even know if I consented at all. That's what a scrupulous person gets into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a certain danger of scrupulosity here. Um, if a person gets into a, a fix uh, of mind so that virtually everything they think of somehow is suggestive to them of something impure, uh, Satan would like to use that as a basis of, to drag them into, um, into scrupulosity, which is very dangerous. Um, obviously, I mean, God can use even scrupulosity to sanctify the soul. Um, some of the saints actually lapsed into the scrupulosity, and it was a test of their trust in God. And they developed a very powerful trust and confidence in God and his love for them uh, to overcome their their trupiosity. They had to. And they did, because God gave them the grace to do so. But no saint would recommend becoming scrupulous if you didn't have to, okay? Uh, They saw this as an affliction and as an evil. Um, In their their case, uh, not a moral evil in the sense that they consented to it, but... uh, but it was something that they had to endure, a, a real suffering, and a temptation too. Uh, the temptation with scrupulosity ultimately turns into a temptation to despair. That's what the devil really wants. So um, uh, I, w- I would recommend not going uh, you know, to confession every week. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, excuse me, every day. Uh, the scrupulous person would like to go to confession every hour on the hour, because it's the only way they can get any relief from their anxieties. But but in any case, uh, the individual involved here and others who are going through what he or she is going through right now uh, should find a a good priest, a very wise and prudent priest to talk to and explain what their problems are in in the area of uh, practicing virtue, staying in the state of grace and uh, resisting temptation. All of it. They should lay it all out and uh, follow that uh, good priest's advice. Mm. The church herself has for centuries 
been dealing with souls who have been going, going through this. And all of the wisdom of the church and all our tradition is certainly needed now in our times because the world is so corrupt. Um, that doesn't mean that human beings um, have invented new sins, have invented even new ways to sin, but they've invented ways to magnify their sins, to publicize their sins, to glorify their sins in the media, in the electronic media. You know? This is again another way of Satan's, Satan's methods of of uh, appearing to be omnipresence, that he, he is everywhere in his in his effects, you know, mm -hmm. in his in his in his work. Mm -hmm. um, pray, uh, as I say, continually for the grace of purity of heart. Pray to the Holy Ghost for inspiration. Pray to our Blessed Mother. Pray to Saint Joseph. What I recommend in in asking God for purity of heart is to pray the three litanies of the Holy Name of Jesus, the Blessed Mother, sometimes called the Litany of Loretto, and the Litany of Saint Joseph. Um, I think those three litanies in honor of the Holy Family are very powerful. And if one perseveres in praying them, the graces will certainly be coming. Um, it is very important, I think, for someone in, the, in, a, in a frame of mind such as this individual to simply face the fact that he or she has gotten to the point where there are associations made in his or her imagination which... Uh, would try to p pollute and corrupt everything the person th person thinks, uh, even in prayer. And so I think that person has to uh, try begin adopting a certain approach to these ideas that come to the mind, the imagination. They have to realize that it isn't their intellect that is speaking here. It isn't their will that's speaking here. The fact that something occurs to them automatically because of some association that is made in the imagination is not a sin. There is only sin involved where there is consent. And a person could go through, you know, could pray a rosary in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and have a thousand associations come to their imagination, if it's a pretty bad case, I realize, or they're thinking about the passion death of our Lord, they could have a thousand associations that come to their mind with regard to this impure idea or that impure idea. These ideas can have a certain forcefulness for the imagination because they're so filthy, so vile, so corrupt, so weird, so distorted, so twisted, that because of original sin, we are fascinated by these twisted, vile, corrupt things. We're fascinated by them. It's sort of like they stun us and they seize our attention. But by this time... In this person's life, he or she should realize these things have no value. They have no real value whatsoever. They are just uh, things that have come into my mind from the world, the flesh, the devil, and I do not consent to them. I am horrified by them. But even though I'm horrified by them, I'm not going to give them my attention. I brush them away. If I were playing, if I were praying the rosary and I had a pesky fly flying around, buzzing around, landing on my ears, I would, I would try to, you know, swat it away. But I mean, if the fly was that pesky that it just, it's impossible to pray while I'm constantly swatting, right? I eventually would have to get to the point where I just let the fly crawl on my ear and I, I, I just learned not to pay attention to it. Well, 
it's even more difficult for somebody. I mean, imagine how difficult it would be for somebody. You know, you, you know perhaps what it's like to be praying the rosary, uh, like in camp or someplace like that, and a fly lands on your hand and is walking you around on your hand. And the first reaction is, like, swat it. You know, it, it takes your attention away from everything. But eventually, uh, you, you just have to let the fly walk around, and you, you just don't even pay any attention. You say, what, what difference does it make? And, uh, and as far as you can, just, just carry on. It's, so, it's much more difficult for somebody with this problem of imagination, such as described here. But eventually they have to be able to just do the same thing. And it takes an enormous amount of self-control. They have to do the same thing that a person would do if a fly is walking on their ear or on the back of their neck or whatever. And just, at first it's very, very distracting, very uncomfortable, and you know, you, everything in you wants to just swat that fly or take a real swipe at it anyway and drive it away. But after a while, you know, if you just kind of come to terms with it and just say, oh, well, that's the way it is. I mean, the fly, God created this fly, and he's here, and, you know, God allows the fly to be here, so it's fine. We'll, we'll share the same space for the time being. Fly can, you know, walk where he wants for the time being. I don't care. I'm just going to pray. Yeah. And I refuse to allow this to enter into, you know, into my mind. The person with the imagination like this has to get to the point where these things come, and they just basically just disregard them. They just disregard them, and they just carry on. They have not sinned in the slightest, quite the contrary. By disregarding them, they're refusing to give the devil their attention. That's what he wants. He wants their attention. They, re he re they refuse to allow him to have their attention. And, you know, he's very pesky, but like that fly. But uh, they win. They haven't consented to any of these evil things. Quite the contrary, they're glorifying God ten times over. I mean, when you pray the rosary, even devoutly, even thoughtfully, I mean, it's very meritorious, right? Very pleasing to God. But when you pray the rosary under battlefield conditions like that, and not only are, uh, you, know, are you not allowing these things to be a distraction to you, but you refuse to consent to them for one reason, for one reason only, because... They are contrary to the love of God. That can make your rosary, you know, ten times more acceptable and more, more an active homage and adoration to Almighty God. So, I, I just, again, uh, you know, one, one could write books, and there are those who, spiritual writers who are far holier than yours truly, who've written on this very subject. But that's about all I can tell this individual um, tonight. I would hope that this person would write back and get in touch with you and uh, see if this was of any help to them and uh, maybe uh, give give us a little more, well, whatever information we might need that might be helpful. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, that, that's great. I think that's some great practical advice. They actually, they ask for uh, for a lot of practical advice, but I think that uh, that the praying of the, the three litanies that, that you mentioned, I think, I think that that would be a great help. And it's funny, the the story of the uh, the fly crawling around it reminds me of a uh, of an episode in Saint Teresa's life, where uh, oh. <laughs> during an, uh, one particular time of prayer with with all of her other sisters, she said the the sister that was kneeling kneeling next to her for some reason just could not stop fidgeting and twitching mm. and moving throughout the oh, whole right, entire right, time right, right. of prayer. And mm. she said Saint Teresa said that during that whole entire time she could not offer up one prayer to yes. her. She was so distracted and so distraught by all this fidgeting and twitching from the sister next door. But she learned to just uh 
to just go with it and just mm. offer up what she could because, like you said, God obviously let that happen yeah. for a reason. So she had to. It, it, it brings also, uh, and it might be the same case. It might be a different case. But I can see the fidgeting would cause uh, the rosary beads to be, you know, clattering against the wooden choir stalls. And so she kept hearing the rosary beads uh, clattering against the choir stall. That was another issue, maybe. But at first it was extremely distracting to her to hear that going on. And she decided that she would just take control and not allow it to be. And um, and she was very successful. I think she said she decided to try to, in her own mind, consider that a kind of uh, music. Yeah, exactly. So they tried to transform it into a kind of music yeah. with the rosary beads bladder clattering on the... Uh, yeah. Well, the kind of things that this young person has going through his or her mind, would be, it'd be hard to transform that into music. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you, might, you might say, on the other hand, that they might consider this to be sort of like bugs on the windshield. Mm-hmm. As, they're, as they're driving along, pursuing the course of the rosary, that uh, these things are just like bugs getting splattered on the windshield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just, uh, and they, they, they don't get into the intellect of the will because you won't allow them to mm-hmm. enter the car. Mm-hmm. You, know? mm-hmm. you keep the windows rolled up. Yeah. Poor analogy, but all <laughs> analogies limp, as they say. Yeah. So. And uh, as, as far as practical advice, Father, if I may, I just recently read in the Imitation of Christ where mm-hmm. Thomas Kempis says uh, uh, to bridle gluttony mm-hmm. and all of the other passions will, will more easily be, be subdued after that. So here, mm-hmm. he recommends starting with that. And that seems to be a great, uh, mm-hmm. a great, great piece of advice there. Okay, fasting? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, if a young person... See, the fasting is fine, and I think that's good. But for a young person, I'm a little wary of that because of the the problems people have these days with getting uh, to extremes, like yeah, you know, the anorexia and all that. Yeah. So I'd be a little concerned about, uh, I mean, I, I gather this individual might be a teenager. So, yes. So I'd be a little concerned that, uh, uh, I mean, certainly moderation in food and drink is necessary. I wouldn't necessarily get them off on fasting quite yet because it'd be easy to go to an extreme. Sure, that's true. That's a good point. Uh, well, Father, speaking of impurity, I believe this ties in. We, we received a, a request from a viewer to comment upon uh, the the new superior of the Jesuit order and his his uh, his comments that he made concerning, concerning marriage. Uh, I have some of the article here before me, Father, but just to kind of uh, paraphrase some of this. Essentially, he says that... Uh, that Jesus' words about marriage must be contextualized and they must be discerned. He says that there was no tape recorder present at, at the time when, when Jesus spoke these words and uh, they were addressed to someone in particular, so they might not apply to those within our own day. And so we have to kind of use our discernment and, mm-hmm. and, and apply these words to our own days. So how would you, how would you comment upon that? What's, what's, what's mm-hmm. the problem here? Well, this, uh, this new superior of the Jesuit order, right, mm-hmm. um, has been approved by Francis, yes. okay? And he thinks exactly like Francis thinks. He's also a Jesuit, right? Yes, yes. So he's one of these really new order, uh, new world order Jesuits, one of these revolutionary modernist Jesuits. I think it's the same one who said that we basically invented uh, Lucifer, the devil, the devil yeah. uh, to express, uh, so it's Lucifer who kind of symbolizes evil to us, right? Exactly. So we sort of conjured him up. I suppose the next step down this man's line is, well, we did the same to, you know, personify evil or good by inventing the idea of God, too. I mean, sure. the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, refers 
to uh, hell and uh, Satan and Lucifer so many times in the Gospels means nothing to this man because there were no tape recorders present. Uh, the point is, we can't really trust the Gospels as they are written. Mm -hmm. uh, so all we can trust is his interpretation. Uh, his, he will tell us what they mean today. Okay, and uh, he's trying to take our Lord's our Lord's words about the sanctity of marriage, the unicity of marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman, and it is uh, permanent. Right, it is indissoluble. He says all of that is uh, has to be contextualized. Um, and it may no longer simply be true, right? Mm -hmm. In the world today, we have to understand in the world today that the, these ideas may be passé. And uh, so we take our cue as to what is right and wrong, not from what the Gospels say, as though they were the Word of God. Of course, if they're the Word of a God who's constantly evolving anyway, right, as the modernists would say, uh, what difference does that make? Well, we take our cue from the world, right? how the world wants to live. Uh, essentially, this is what this man is saying. He's, he's uh, basically destroying the entire idea of divine revelation yeah. and saying that divine revelation is basically <clears throat> however we interpret things for ourselves today. <laughs> That's exactly what he says. Uh, yeah, so we're going to make it up as we go along. This is typical modernist dribble. Mm -hmm. And uh, no wonder St. Pius X says it is the complexus of all heresies. Um, it's an denial of all truths. I think this this gentleman, what's his name? Uh, uh, Abbas, Abasco? Abascal? Okay. A-V-A-S-C-A-L? Uh, Abascal, I Abascal. guess. Uh, he says that he doesn't like dogma. He doesn't like doctrine. Doctrine is so hard, it's like stone. It's like petrified, right? Mm -hmm. Classic modernism. Exactly what St. Pius X condemned. Absolutely condemned. Exactly what's coming out of this mouth, mm -hmm. this man's mouth, is exactly what St. Pius X condemned in 1907 with his encyclical against modernism. And the, the errors, the condemnation of the errors of modernism is what the encyclical is, con is entitled in English. And St. Pius X certainly has condemned what this man has said. Um, remember the modernist believes that all that all religion begins with <clears throat> the individual faith experience the, the the individual person's faith experience he experiences the divine in some manner or form and uh, that impresses him very much that he's experienced the divine something superhuman whatever it might be so however they want to think of the divine it's very airy and nebulous and um, then the individual, um, certain individuals like Mohammed and Moses and Buddha and Jesus, they would say, um, had such a powerful faith experience that others wanted to share in that. So they came and they, they became like disciples of them, as their disciples to share in their personal powerful faith experience. And uh, then after, uh, during their lifetime, during the lifetime of these individuals who had these great experiences of the divine, they are lionized by their followers, um, and then they're finally, uh, finally deified by them. It's something superhuman almost, right? In the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, they say that he was... Uh, 
uh, transfigured and disfigured in the in the memory, and that's where our faith comes. Our faith in our Lord comes from that. So they say that there is a radical difference between the Jesus of history and the Christ of uh, of faith. Right. But they're not the same. One is a a construct or an invention, right, of our belief, of our religious sense. But uh, what they say is this, that we, we try to express the, the original uh, faith experience, we try to express that in formulas of words. And then out of those formulas of words come secondary formulas, which are dogmas, and they become fixed. But the trouble is those fixed dogmas um, only apply for a certain length of time, because as mankind moves on, those dogmas are calcified, petrified, as this man would say, kind of stony, and they, they need to evolve. The dogmas are something fixed, as though there's something true that is always and everywhere true. And, uh, and, and that is why these dogmas are the enemy of the faith experience, because the faith experience of each successive generation changes. As each generation experiences the divine in their own way, they have to leave those dogmas behind. Too rigid. They're too rigid, as he says, exactly that. And uh, they will not only uh, hold back the faith experience in people who are holding on to these rigid dogmas of the past, but they will actually cause the whole religion to die, mm -hmm. you know, as though it would uh, calcify. So every religion, to be vital, has to have an evolving truth uh, about what? Uh, notably, who God is, who, who the divine is. Mm -hmm. um, we see now that uh, with Francis at the, at the helm there in the Novus Ordo, um, they're, they're trying to move everyone forward in this uh, faith experience. The, the objective being that all mankind ultimately will, will share the same faith experience. And having the same faith experience of who God is, we'll all agree. Having left our dogmas behind, though, we will all grow into one world religion, okay? And we'll all turn to the same, the same God, and the same God of their faith experience that will not be the true God, he will be the Antichrist. So... Um, they're the uh, the occultists, uh, the theosophists, okay, have been predicting for some decades now the arrival of a world teacher named Lord Maitreya. They call him Lord Maitreya. And um, he is supposed to teach mankind its own divinity, that mankind is God. And um, so the, the modernists are playing a very, very important role in this. Uh, we we sometimes overlook the fact that the coincidence of Marxism and modernism is not an accident. Um, St. Pius X condemned modernism in 1907. Our Blessed Mother appeared at Fatima in 1917, ten years later, and talked about the errors of Russia spreading throughout the world. Right? It was Marxism, right? Actually, Marxism and modernism have an enormous amount in common in principles. They, they, they actually start and end in the same place. Uh, there's no accident. You might, you might say that uh, modernism is a form of Marxism within the church. 
Uh, you might say that Marxism is modernism within the world. Uh, they're they're co-relative, you know. But modernism is basically a form of Marxism, like a theistic Marxism, which eventually, as St. Pius X says, ends in, in uh, apostasy, which ends in a, actually atheism and pantheism, uh, which is exactly where Marxism would take us in the world today. So uh, I think the attack within the church, the attack of Marxism with the errors spreading throughout the world is paralleled by the attack of modernism within the church. Sure. And they're working hand in hand with each other. Mm -hmm. Father, I'd like for you to respond to this one, this one uh, little paragraph here um, that, that, that particularly stood out to me. Um, so th this is in, in response to, to a question of, uh, of when, when this Jesuit superior was asked whether the words of Jesus have an absolute value. And he replied by saying that over the last century in the church, there has been a great blossoming of studies that seek to understand exactly what Jesus meant to say. <laughs> that is not relativism, but attests that the word is relative. The gospel is written by human beings. It is accepted by the church, which is made up of human persons. So it is true that no one can change the words of Jesus, but one must know what those words were. And he also goes on to, to talk about the, the tape recorder, how there, there was no tape recorder present to, 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 uh, to record Jesus' words. And you know, Father, it's actually uh, a, a good argument. In the sense that if there's no church, then yeah. If there is no tape recorder, then what do you have with the Bible? You have uh, some random collection of, of documents and no way to to authenticate it. Um, so it, it seems that the, the that this the very one of the, the the leaders of the church that should be the other font of divine uh, revelation that, that's upholding Catholic tradition that he's abandoning that and saying that all there is is the scriptures. Uh, but no one was there with a tape recorder, so the scriptures mean nothing. So we have nothing with the church and nothing with the there's tape recorder, left. and there's no. nothing left. There, there's absolutely nothing left. Take the paragraph that that man says, and he just does away with everything. Yeah. Does away with faith, does away with morals, does away with the church, does away with sacrifice. He does away with everything. Yeah. does away with God, yeah. for that matter. And um, that's that's the result of the uh, of the last century of blossoming, great blossoming yeah. of studies. Well, he acknowledges. <laughs> he's, he's basically telling you that in the, with the rise of modernism, we've come yeah. to realize and. Yeah. That yeah, we can't change Jesus' words, but we don't really know what they are. Yeah, we we can't really know what these words were, and uh, and basically what he's saying also is that even if we did, we we we'd have to decide for ourselves what they mean. Right. Okay. So as though the church never really knew what they meant before, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, but it's up to Abascal. He's, he, if anybody can tell us what they mean, he can tell us what they mean. Okay. So he tells us that we have to interpret uh, what these words supposedly were that Jesus said, but we don't know for sure. And uh, we have to uh, discern, uh, the word discernment is a big one with these, <laughs> these modernist Jesuits today, discernment. Um, and uh, basically that's just a matter of, uh, well, I'll, let, let's all figure out you know, what we want to do now. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of belief and morality. Mm -hmm. uh, the man's an apostate. Sure. He's simply an apostate. Mm -hmm. And he should be regarded as an apostate. Uh, he and his fellow Jesuit, uh, Francis, should be regarded as apostates. Even when they talk about pious things, they, uh, they don't mean this, those words do not mean the same thing. They, he's a living example of the idea that, well, well, we don't really understand what these words mean, even if they were real, but they're not. Even if we knew they were real, that Jesus spoke them, we still, we have to try to figure out what they really meant. And uh, we've been trying to figure that out ever since. Yeah. 
So, uh, you know, like Francis himself, I mean, he uses the words God, he uses, he uses the name of Jesus, and so on, but he falsifies them according to his own fanciful idea of what they should mean, mm-hmm. according to Francis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I thought it's, that it's interesting, Father, how he, he continually makes this point of, uh, of the, the personal conscience. It's up to the, the individual to, to discern these things. Mm-hmm. And that actually uh, parallels to, actually, ju- just today I was, I was having a, a discussion with uh, in a, in a, an online forum uh, talking about the need to return to Christian morality in our country, and that that would solve so many of our political problems. Because when you, uh, when when man orders his spiritual life, his political life naturally follows after that. And uh, the uh, the retort that I kept getting to that was uh, essentially that what we have to what we have to to work on it is self governance. We have to have the law of self governance first, and then maybe if we have have time for for God's law, that's nice. But I made the point that. You first, you have to have an infallible first law upon which you can base your other laws, mm-hmm. and so you have to have the infallible uh, law of God first, and then you can have your your political laws and everything else that, that follow after that. And that seems to to tie in nicely uh, to to this idea of, of what he's saying here, where if you have this personal conscience with, with no basis, no self governance, nothing, nothing. It, then it is, then your 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 self uh, your self governance, it, it's up to the individual. It's just a matter of taste. That's mm-hmm. all it is. It's just mm-hmm. like chocolate or vanilla ice cream. Which one do you like? Do you like mm-hmm. sand or do you not like sand? Mm-hmm. It's, there, there's not there's no basis for it, and that just seems like a recipe for an absolute. Anarchy. Yeah. Well, some people say I'm self-governed. I follow my passions. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm self-governed. I just follow my imagination. Whatever I can think of, that, that I do. Yeah. You know, uh, the whole the whole meaning of self-governance means nothing. Yeah. If you take away the objective, mm-hmm. uh, moral law of God. Yeah, but it's 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 such a shame that that we have the what are supposed to be the leaders of the church, which are the infallible yeah. church, and mm-hmm. they're supposed to be the ones telling us that they are the infallible voice and that. Our interpretations of, of the gospel, or we can't have these personal interpretations. Well, the church has been in, personal conscience. The church has been invaded. The church has been yeah. infiltrated. Yeah. Um, St. Pius X talked about this back in 1907, so we're not surprised yeah. to find when he says the modernists are all the more dangerous, the most dangerous enemies the church has ever faced, in fact, mm-hmm. because they are uh, within the very veins of the church, you know, within the very bloodstream of the church. And um, they lay the axe to the very meaning of faith itself. They attack the whole idea of faith. Mm-hmm. So they're not just attacking this doctrine or that doctrine. They're attacking, attacking belief as such, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as the church itself defines faith, the virtue. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, th- this man, uh, sad to say, I think reflects very, very well um, Francis's own point of view on things, and uh, but it's clear that from what he said, he has no faith. He has no faith. He's a modernist. You see, modernism is a progressive sort of thing. There are people who accept some of the principles of modernism and um, begin to apply them, but they don't necessarily see the consequences right away. In fact, the modernists might make them sound rather pious to begin with. And some people fell into them because perhaps on the surface of them they, they, they sounded vaguely pious you know, to take that approach. Um, but as people begin to apply modernist principles, they see the consequences for faith are devastating. 
sort of like acid rain eating away the faith, you know. There are people then who, who see, in seeing the consequences of modernism, retreat from modernism and begin to rethink, rethink these principles. There were priests who followed the modernist way with the new liturgy and then came back to the traditional faith again because they were horrified by the consequences of the principles. It's, it's to St. Pius X's great credit as a saint that he could see in the principles the consequences, and he could see the, dam- the, the damaging consequences of these principles and how wrong they were. Mm-hmm. Others, lesser lights than St. Pius X, might be taken in by them and fooled by the modernists into thinking they're, they're kind of cutesy, pious, nice little things to say and think, and then they get along the way and they may go, you know, down the road to different different path, different distances yeah. before they realize how devastating these principles are. Mm-hmm. But for those who see the consequences and are not horrified by them and retreat from those evil principles of modernism, they, their tendency is to go farther and farther and farther into modernism until finally the ultimate consequence of fully embracing modernism, as Francis has done, as Abascal has done, uh, a complete apostasy, where they use the vocabulary of uh, Christianity, they use the vocabulary of Catholicism, but they do not mean the same thing by those words that Catholics mean. They have a, an entire new dictionary by which they've redefined everything, sacraments, uh, Christ, Jesus, God, everything, soul, you know. Even the word soul even just doesn't appear in the new liturgy at all, you know. Um, so, um, it's, uh, it's a, it's a terrible thing to watch somebody basically, it's worse than watching somebody go down the path of Alzheimer's or, or advanced dementia, seeing them lose their faith entirely and become an utter apostate, yeah. as we see with this man, as we see with Francis. Mm-hmm. Father, what's the antidote to modernism? Faith, the true faith, the Catholic faith, the traditional Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they really, people really need a true course in the true Catholic faith. St. Pius X prescribed scholastic philosophy and theology. Now, there were those <coughs> who had some foundation in scholastic uh, philosophy and theology and still went right into the modest and mod- modernist camp. John Paul II, for example had a certain foundation in the scholastic, uh, philosoph- scholastic philosophers and theologians, St. Thomas Aquinas and so on. But evidently it didn't take, and it makes you wonder what, you know, how, how secure that teaching was. Because again, he, he basically put aside his scholastic, whatever training he had in scholastic thought, and opted for the modernists. Uh, the same with Ratzinger, okay? Uh, he evidently had some kind of foundation in scholastic teaching and, um, and put it aside to embrace a modernist view. Um, sometimes those who do that are rejecting the intellect in favor of the romantic. The, the, the romanticism of this kind of adventure, modernism, you know, striking out in, in new directions, you know, and uh, it's not so much reality as how you feel about reality. That's what's real. But not, your, what's real is the, your feelings about reality, not the reality itself. And um, 
the um, there there are actually some traces of some vestiges of scholastic thought in Benedict the Sixteenth, which is why I think he's considered to be quite conservative, relatively speaking. Right, but it's all relative uh, because those vestiges of, of scholastic training that he had there did have did not prevent him from going uh, down the path of modernism. Now, whether he has gone to the complete, like the ultimate extreme of modernism, as Francis says, that's debatable, you know. Um, but but what is not debatable is is when a, when a Catholic says, "I believe," it's not. It doesn't mean the same thing as when a modernist says, "I believe." They mean two very different things, mutually exclusive things, actually, diametrically opposite things. Okay, so. It's easy for a Catholic to be deceived by a modernist who uses that vocabulary. The, the, the Catholic would say, well, do you believe in the Immaculate Conception? Oh, I believe in the Immaculate Conception. Do you believe in God? Oh, I believe in God. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? I believe in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in the Blessed Trinity? I believe in the Blessed Trinity. Oh, yes, they believe in all the things, but they don't believe what you believe. And even the very idea of believing, doesn't, it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, people can be deceived by that, and people are being deceived by Francis, even though. Mm-hmm. Some may even be deceived by this man who says, "Who can say yes? I believe." Yeah. You know, he says that um, Satan is kind of a, uh, a figment of our imagination. We kind of dreamed him up, cooked him up to represent something uh, just evil, right? But if you were to ask him, "Well, do you believe in the devil?" and he, he would, with perfect composure, say, "Oh, yes, I believe." Yeah. I believe in that. Yeah. But if you start pressing and asking for the particulars, and you know exactly what to ask, you know, you'll start making it very uncomfortable. You'll discover that when he says he believes in that, he really doesn't believe in that. <laughs> right. Not what you understand as belief, anyway. Right. So they blow a lot of smoke. Um, and But as Paul VI said, one of the great modernists, the smoke of Satan has filled the sanctuary of God, right? That's modernism. Yeah, definitely. It seems yeah. that uh, that all of our programs somehow always always are, they always seem to come back, back to this topic of modernism. But I mean, that is yeah. that's the uh, that's the problem that we're dealt with today. But mm-hmm. it seems the uh, the solution never changes, right? Prayer, prayer, prayer and, the, and the true faith. You know, yeah. to have the true faith. If if one wants to wants to know um, whether or not he or she has fallen prey to modernist belief. Mm-hmm. Or has actually been taken in by an apparent conservative priest, been taken in by some modernist thinking. That person should uh, actually try to get a, a good course in uh, the scholastic philosophy and scholastic theology. Where can they get that? Uh, that's a very good question. There are still some uh, very faithful uh, teachers of scholastic philosophy and scholastic theology, St. Thomas Aquinas. And um, I would be hesitant to send anyone to anywhere online, for good reason. But uh, there are some, some excellent books out there that one can find. If one can find the old uh, manuals, well, A Tour of the Summer by uh, Monsignor Paul Glenn is, is good. But again, one needs some kind of guidance in this, too. <laughs> so um, perhaps that's something that we should look into, trying to provide... Sure. Uh, a bit of uh, guidance in that. We can do that. Um, 
But we need a few more lifetimes, and I'm not so sure that <laughs> yeah, God will put up with us for that. We long. still got quite a stack of emails and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and many more. Yeah. So, but there are there are answers to the question. I just don't have the answer right here. We're so we're really <laughs> looking into it. The answer. Yeah, then. we're getting there. But I think that's enough for tonight. Father. But if you look back at uh, Pashendi yeah. by Saint Pius X, that's what he said has to be done. Yeah. The, the seminaries, the colleges, the Catholic colleges have to go back to the scholastic philosophy and theology and give a good foundation. And that is, if there is something that is a, a inoculation to immunize one against modernism, that's it. Sounds good. Sounds like mm. a plan. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for being here tonight. Father. Absolutely. I appreciate Tom, it. thank you. No God bless you. No problem. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.